the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us, danproftshow.com, where you can get podcasts on social media, at Dan Proft Show, Facebook, Twitter, all that jazz. Uh, we begin tonight, really, where we left off yesterday, in yesterday's show. Uh, really uh, appreciate the first-person account that uh, City Journal's Chris Rufo was able to give us on what's happening uh, in Seattle, and more specifically, the independent nation of Chaz, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle. Uh, just to remind our listeners, if you didn't catch the Chris Rufo interview, uh, he set up what's happened in the past two weeks and particularly the last uh, few days in Seattle quite nicely. So, you know, as many of you have seen since the George Floyd uh, killing and subsequent uh, protests and riots, uh, a group of protesters and Antifa-affiliated activists uh, engaged in a pitched battle uh, with Seattle Police Department for about a week in the attempt to take over their East Precinct building. And the press had bubbled up. It was very negative towards the police. And the mayor of Seattle, Jenny Durkin, and police chief Carmen Best made the decision to have the police officers and National Guard abandon the East Precinct and surrender it to the protesters. And what you saw after initial period of confusion is that the protesters have cordoned off a six-block area. They've barricaded it. Uh, They have armed guards uh, and, at times, checkpoints. And they've established what they call the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Uh, And they're trying to set up, in effect, a parallel government uh, within this region in opposition uh, to the state and local authorities. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, here's a little flavor of uh, those that are in charge and their their fellow cultists. Yeah, and uh, you had the mayor and the police chief, as Chris Rufo said, decide to turn over a police precinct and thus a six-block area in downtown Seattle to that mob that you just heard chanting. It was not really an inability to, to defend the precinct. It was about a PR battle. Chris Rufo made the important point, police telling him that, you know, they were taking uh, incoming in terms of bottles and even IEDs, sort of shocking. And, of course, the local press was reporting just on the police response and not what the rioters and the mobsters were doing. So they lost they were losing the PR war. So out of political expediency, Seattle's. Champagne Socialist Mayor Jenny Durkin 
I guess in consultation with the police chief, Carmen Best, turned over a police precinct and six blocks of the city to the mob to allow them to turn the barricades outward, establish Checkpoint Charlie's and a warlordocracy in the center of one of America's great cities. She said yesterday, the unthinkable will happen when you indulge the identitary politics that is afoot in all of our civic and cultural institutions. And that's what we've done. And the politician's response. Here's Chris Rufo. Uh, Mayor Durkin has disappeared the past few days. She initially was releasing a statement saying that this was a, a, a de-escalation tactic and they were putting trust in the protesters. Um, and over the past few days, she's really disappeared. And what's happening is that other members of the city council are now calling for her resignation and siding with the protesters. So you have a city council that is siding with the protesters against the mayor. The mayor is extremely isolated right now. She hasn't taken action. She hasn't exhibited any leadership. And according to my sources within the Seattle Police Department, uh, the mayor and the police chief have said uh, in in operational meetings, we have no plan. We're going to go day by day and see how this thing unfolds. Um, So you're really seeing something extraordinary. And the governor uh, had just an unbelievable press conference yesterday. He was talking about coronavirus, telling people to wear masks and uh, maintain social distancing. A reporter asked him, what do you think about the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone? And he said, I don't know. I haven't heard anything about it. So as part of his state was under the control of armed paramilitaries, uh, the governor was totally out to lunch and worried about people uh, wearing masks in public parks, which I think just demonstrates the total ineptitude of the political leadership in this city and state. That's Democrat Socialist Governor Jay Inslee, a one-time presidential candidate, you recall. Uh, In terms of uh, calls for resignation, Mayor Durkin of Seattle uh, said of her and her police chief, we thought about having our Thelma and Louise moment, but decided against it. Isn't that cute? Is this funny? Uh, Durkin has uh, reemerged to respond to Trump's tweets on the topic, characterizing the uh, Chaz, the independent nation of Chaz, thusly, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone is not a lawless wasteland of anarchist insurrection. It is a peaceful expression of our community's collective grief and their desire to build a better world. Is it? Well, here's what her police chief, Carmen Best, said on the occasion of abdication before they decided to recast what Chaz is with some help from their friends in the press corps. Um, our 911 uh, response times have tripled in the area. They've gone from just over five minutes to about 18 minutes. Rapes, robberies, and all sorts of violent accidents have been occurring in the area they were not able to get to. So it is not a right for us not to be able to deploy our officers here. Chief Best spoke with protesters several times, and she and command staff evaluated the building and found someone did breach the facility. Uh, there is some damage, and it clearly is a mess around here, so we need to do a lot of cleaning. And rather than doing that, they left. So characterizing what was happening with an anarchist insurrection, one way, abdicating, and then it's just a block party, as it's literally been called. Street festival. The New York Times, Mike Baker. What has emerged is an experiment in life without police. Part street festival, part commune. Hundreds have gathered to hear speeches, poetry, and music. Uh, oh, isn't that lovely? 
un, until and unless they're rousted by Raz Simone. Yes, in this warlordocracy, he is uh, the Mohammed Adid in the Mogadishu uh, uh, that has that has Seattle become. Uh, here's a Tucker Carlson last night <laughs> characterizing uh, the new head of state, Raz Simone. It took barely a day for the nation of Chaz to get its first warlord. And it was quite a promotion for him. Just a week ago, Raz Simone was an up-and-coming rapper. He was also a super host for Airbnb. Now, he's a monarch. <laughs> In videos taken within Chaz, Simone is seen patrolling the area with his allies. They have guns. They're declaring, we're the police now. In one clip, the monarch's men assault a citizen of Chaz for spray painting graffiti inside the zone. Just like the mafia, Chaz doesn't put up with nonsense like that in their own neighborhood. And uh, Raz Simone, uh, that incident that uh, Tucker referenced, said this when he rolled up on those who were tagging without Simone's permission. We are the police of this community now. We are the leaders of this community now. Uh-huh. They're the police and they're the leaders. It's remarkable. Did you find that remarkable? And uh, Chris Rufo made this point in that uh, last clip we played from him, but it really bears emphasis. You have the thugs and the politicians on the same side against the police. The civilian authorities who have dominion over the municipal police department are in liege with the thugs, the warlords, and their coterie against the police. That's new. That's new. And uh, so this is going well beyond defunding, but that's also happening. Uh, Portland City Council voted a 6% cut in the uh, Portland Police Department's budget. Uh, Of course, the the Antifa mobsters wanted a 50% cut. Same thing in Seattle. They want a 50% cut. You've heard the pronouncements from Garcetti in L.A., from de Blasio in New York about the cuts that will be coming to those departments to repurpose that money for social services of some some kind or the other. Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago has said she'll take the, that position under advisement as well. I mean, for the civilian political authorities to turn over institutions to anarchists, this is, again, taking identitarian politics to its ridiculous but inevitable end. This is Dan Fox. Podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And I just uh, mentioned Mayor Lightfoot, Lori Lightfoot, in a previous segment talking about the Seattle. Seattle has become a national story for all the wrong reasons because of the independent nation of Chaz that has been set up. And, uh, of course, we don't mean Bono, as we discussed. Chicago, an, a national story, perhaps an international story again, 
and not for any good reason. Uh, this time, it was uh, what happened on the uh, early morning, in the early morning hours following the most violent day in Chicago in 60 years. This is um, May 31st into June 1st during rioting, destruction. Uh, local reporter, local ABC7 reporter, frames what happened when police were dispatched to Congressman Bobby Rush's office. Bobby Rush, former Black Panther, longtime politician in Chicago. The spokesman for Congressman Bobby Rush tells us that a burglar alarm was triggered here at his campaign office and that police were notified. So eventually, the staff had a chance to look at the video inside the office. They did see police officers, several of them, but they say the police at that time were on their cell phones, lying down, and eating popcorn. While looters targeted Southside businesses, Chicago police were captured on camera, lounging inside Congressman Bobby Rush's campaign office at 54th and Wentworth. And uh, here's how Mayor Lightfoot uh, reacted to uh, the video. These individuals did indeed abandon their responsibilities and their obligation and their oath to serve and protect. Mm-hmm. And uh, don't make her chase you. You know who you are. You know what you did. Don't make us come find you. Come in, identify yourselves, but we will find you. And we will kill you in her best Liam Neeson impersonation. Uh, FOP union president in Chicago, John Canizara, of the video. Sure, the video looks bad just on face value with no backstory, but as we all know, that's not the whole story. And for her to go and interrupt midday broadcasting and parade the whole brass of the police department and chastise officers and put them out on video was absolutely disgusting. And, uh, of course, I saw the video. Uh, many of you have probably seen it by now, too, as it makes its uh, star turn on social media. And uh, it doesn't look good, but there's a lot of ans- unanswered questions that need to be answered. There's a dispute whether or not it was a burglar alarm that police were responding to or it was someone affiliated with Bobby Rush who called and asked for a police response because of the the rioting and the looting that was going on in the mall in which that office is located on the south side. There's a dispute about that. Um, Now, there were 10 to 13 officers that rotated through that office over the course of several hours. That was a, a resource allocation decision that was made by somebody because those officers were not in their own cars, were not in individual cars as more than 100 Chicago police cars were damaged, if not uh, completely wrecked by rioters over that weekend. So somebody said, hey, you guys and gals get in the van. We're dropping you off at Bobby Rush's office. Somebody made that decision. And that decision was handed down by somebody higher up to be certain. So who made that resource allocation decision and why? And uh, and, you know, and then otherwise you're sitting around um, an office uh, and uh, apparently nothing was going on. And so you relax a little bit when some of these guys, many of them have been doing, you know, 12 and 14 hour shifts uh, for days on end because of the nature of what was happening on the streets of Chicago. So I'm not uh, rendering judgment on the case, but I am suggesting there are questions that need to be answered. Uh, rather than just listening to the preening of Lori Lightfoot and and also 
her uh, newly minted police superintendent, uh, David Brown, who we uh, imported from Dallas. If you sleep during a riot, what do you do on a regular shift when there's no riot? We're going to hold you accountable and that your behavior reflects my leadership and it reflects all of your leadership. Move, get out of the way, but we are going to uphold the nobility of this profession. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to Lori Lightfoot, she also had this message to FOP, John Canazara and the Fraternal Order of Police, uh, based on the pushback that uh, they were providing to uh, Lightfoot's conclusions about the, the incident, uh, t- say, suggesting that, um, you know, it's um, way past time for uh, a reckoning. You know what? Um, there will be a reckoning for the FOP. And I think that moment is now. And that's what I'll say about that. You know, it's just interesting. Uh, solidarity as well as antagonism, whether it's good or bad, is really predicated on the underlying substance of what people are standing in solidarity for or what people are antagonistic over. And uh, you got to understand in Chicago, like in so many big cities that are governed by these cultural Marxists and champagne socialists, you start, you have a, a public official, you have a mayor who starts from the premise that the police is a systemically racist institution, starts from a position of antagonism. And I mean, again, Chicago is not as bad as Seattle, where you literally have rioters, thugs and politicians in solidarity against police. Good example of bad solidarity. It's not quite there yet. But in a city that Wall Street Journal, unfortunately, properly termed Murder USA this week, you really want this open hostility between the mayor and the police. You want the mayor and a member of Congress, Illinois congressional delegation, to be aligned against the police and give license to the worst elements on the streets to take an antagonistic, if not violent, attitude toward police? Is that uh, in the best interest of Chicago residents, or is it just in Lori Lightfoot's very narrow political interests? And again, you could ask the same question of all of these big city mayors that we've discussed. Oh, and by the way, there's nothing more delicious than Black Panther race hustling Bobby Rush's take on all of this. They did not care about what was happening to business people, to this city. They didn't care. Bobby Rush, real proponent of the business community on the South Side and in general. Uh, They didn't care. Remember uh, the rules of engagement, just so you know, basically was let the looters loot. Because non-law enforcement is like our non-prosecution culture. It's de-escalating. It's not provocative. It's de-escalating. Well, it turned out to be provocative. And, uh, you know, that's the philosophy, again, of the civilian politicians that are making the calls. And uh, then the real crime in all of this. They even had the unmitigated goal to go and make coffee for themselves and to pop popcorn, my popcorn, in my microwave. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you something. Uh, Bobby Rush is uh, not just a Black Panther. He's also the Orville Redenbacher of the Illinois Congressional Delegation. 
And you can shut our businesses and you can burn down the city. But the one thing you cannot do in Chicago, you cannot do. I don't care who you are. You don't take Bobby Rush's popcorn. I asked the guy, why are you so fly? He said, funky comedina. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. wanted to um, tackle an issue that uh, Tucker Carlson tackled. I had seen some of these videos online, but he got the epicenter nurse in question. This uh, nurse, Erin um, Olszewski was at Elmhurst Hospital in Manhattan for a month during the height of the outbreak in New York City. The issue is about uh, commingling the COVID-19 infected with the not COVID-19 infected. And she did a little bit of undercover video work because she couldn't believe what was happening. By asking questions, she was sent home and she didn't think anybody would believe her unless she had video evidence. This patient is in with like a non-COVID. I don't, I don't understand why they're doing that. I know. There's four patients in a row here yeah. that are non-COVID. And this is supposed to be the COVID. Yeah. Because seventh floor, they shut it down. That's right. I'm, it, I'm confused. And then they're going to have non-COVID there. Yeah. This is going to be the only COVID. So they shouldn't put any non-COVIDs here. Well, that's what they've been doing. The guy over in 29, I had him upstairs because I was on CCU before it yeah and he came in with a, a with a stroke i know that's what 26 one was a stroke and Nothing no covid and now it. he's got covid and he's on a vent well, because we gave it to him here that's because we gave it to him here. That's the undercover video that she explained on Tucker Carlson last night. Well, this was a pretty common occurrence, and the video shows COVID and non-COVID being housed in the same floor, sometimes in the same rooms, um, which is ultimately creating, you know, hospital-acquired infections of COVID. It's nosocomial infections. So, you know, people will be admitted without COVID, or, and they will end up getting COVID. Sometimes they'll be awaiting their tests, which would take anywhere from five to 10 days to see if they had COVID and be admitted to these floors while they waited. And another important point that she makes as a nurse, she was the advocate for the patient because no family was allowed in. So no family was present to advocate on behalf of their relatives for what was happening. That's what I'm having a really hard time with because nurses, we're supposed to be reporting, you know, anything that we see unethical, it's part of our job. And yes. without family in the rooms, we are the patient's eyes, ears, and everything. We have to make sure that the patients are being treated properly. Um, anybody and, uh, you know, any nurse or anyone that would question anything would be sent home. I was one of them. Um, and nobody ever wanted any of this out. And I, you know, it's all hearsay if you don't have proof. So I needed to get the proof. So because it is so absolutely unbelievable that without it, you know, it, people couldn't even fathom this. The Wall Street Journal talked to nearly 90 frontline doctors, nurses, healthcare workers, hospital administrators and government officials, reviewed emails, legal documents and memos to analyze what went wrong in New York. Among the missteps they identify improper patient transfers, too sick to have been transferred between hospitals, squabbling between the Cuomo and de Blasio administrations contributed to an uncoordinated effort, and also, per Nurse Olszewski, insufficient isolation protocols 
Hospitals often mixed infected patients with the uninfected early on, and the virus spread to non-COVID-19 units. It wasn't just the nursing homes in New York City and New York State. And then there are other criticisms of the response detailed in this extensive piece in the Wall Street Journal that's worth a read. But, I mean, it's just remarkable, and you rely on whistleblowers like that nurse, and you rely on investigative reporters like those at the Wall Street Journal, because otherwise all you get is Chris Cuomo and his brother playing grab ass on CNN about what a, you know, what a great job they're doing together. It's just this story. This just gets worse and worse. That doesn't even get us to the public health professionals playing politics over the last two weeks, which we now turn to with Dr. Sally Setol. She is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, visiting professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University's Irving Medical Center. Dr. Satel, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. So before we get to uh, the politicization of public health professionals, what about uh, these stories? Uh, Whistleblower has her story and video evidence to support it. And then this Wall Street Journal deep dig about the New York City and state response as the media is otherwise lionizing Andrew Cuomo. Obviously, unfortunately, there are so many levels in which this pandemic is being politicized, and that's one of them. And really, thank goodness for for cell phones, for that kind of proof, because without documentation, it's really very difficult to make the case, or without the kind of rigorous investigative journalism. As a sidelight, we're losing. I mean, the Wall Street Journal is a major newspaper, so they have the funds, but on the local level, we're losing that kind of thing. So you can imagine what goes on in smaller, what could be going on, I should say, in smaller hospitals all over the country, and we're not getting that news. When we come back with Dr. Sally Sattel, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, I want to get uh, her take on some of the commentary of public health professionals as to the COVID-19 safety of some of the civil unrest, even the peaceful varietal of it that we've seen in the past two weeks. More with Dr. Satel when we return. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Back with Dr. Sally Satellin and my uh, best paraphrasing from Airplane. I know you don't do impressions. Your field is in the training of psychiatry. But give me your impression of public health professionals' opinions during the civil unrest over the last two weeks as it pertains to stopping the spread of COVID-19. Epidemiologists and other public health professionals suggesting that uh, it was okay for protesters to protest because, for example, and this is an argument that was literally made, White supremacy is a contributor to COVID-19 spread. Uh, Well, there really are almost two issues here. And and one is a double standard. But you can imagine that if this were a rally for a cause that that progressives did not approve of, um, let's say a a Trump rally or a pro-life rally or an equal pay uh, rally for, for women, something like that. Well, let me back up. I think people are in favor of equal pay. But if this were uh, a march that was, uh, you know, for a 
you know, an issue that was important to um, people on, you know, on the right side of the spectrum. I don't think, in fact, I'm, I'm quite positive we wouldn't be reading points like this. For example, a senior epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins tweeted, in this moment, the public health risks of not protesting to demand an end to systemic racism greatly exceed the harms of the virus. Well, systemic racism, racism is a big problem, but it is not the point of public health to tell us whether risks are worth taking. Their job is to tell us, based on objective measures, what the risks of exposure are. And to me, this belies a very pernicious uh, mission creep that's been part of public health for quite a while. In fact, in 2000, I wrote a book called PCMD, How Political Correctness is Corrupting Medicine. And, you know, and this has been a theme in public health, and especially academic public health, also on the ground for quite a while. And the idea is that essentially they're injecting their social values into risk assessment. And to me, it doesn't matter which direction their social values go in. They could be, for example, saying that Black Lives Matter march was too risky, but an anti-abortion rally was fine. That's not acceptable either. They tell us the risks and individuals make decisions based on that. They weigh what's important to them versus the risks. Also, in the case of, of COVID, when it's infectious uh, and it's a, truly a public health matter, then, of course, officials have to weigh in, too. And that's why we've seen government officials, they're making judgment. It's, it's about lockdowns. <clears throat> they're weighing the complex dynamics of so many things, infectious spread, you know, the consequences of the lockdown, the economic devastation, the social isolation that's so distressing to so many, and the needs of their citizens and cities and states. These are complicated things. And values do come into play there. They come into play, again, at the level of the um, governors and mayors and individuals, but they should not come in at the level of the public health official. They're supposed to be the objective party in this uh, yeah. assessment of risk. Uh, Dr. Stanley Goldfarb, former associate dean of curriculum at the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine, had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal two months ago at the height of the uh, outbreak. And he uh, talked about the need for medical schools to be reformed Above all, the medical profession should abandon the fantasy that physicians can be trained to solve the problems of poverty, food insecurity, and racism. They have no clinical tools with which to address these issues. The public may not realize that well-funded organizations uh, advocate for devoting a substantial part of medical school teaching to, to to teaching social and organizational topics, and it, rather than taking like a course on you know what to do in a pandemic, for example. Um, so Goldfarb was uh, exposing this too as somebody who was in charge of curriculum at a prominent medical school. And uh, I, I don't think people have an appreciation for that and how that sort of politicization of medical schools will result in, frankly, better quality doctors. Well, that was the topic of my book way back then. Yeah. Um, I agree 100% with Dr. Uh, Goldfarb. Um, it's a, at the very least, it's a massive distraction from what physicians should be doing. And at the worst, it harms credibility. Because if people see that, that the choices that doctors and public health people make in terms of what they value is, is shot through with their own personal values, which they're entitled to have as citizens, of course, and protest as citizens. But if they see that, that, their, um, that their advice is becoming distorted by ideology, that what happens when the next pandemic comes? Well, and this one, frankly, isn't re resolved yet. And 
we have to know who to trust. Well, absolutely. And here's the other thing, though, too. And this is the medical profession as well as every other sector. Who will stand up to the mob? Who will take on the perjurers? And by that, I mean people like this, uh, a Black Lives Matter acolyte who tweeted the other day, when you expose a racist student, you stop them from attending a university that will allow them to become a racist healthcare worker, teacher, lawyer, real estate developer, politician, etc. So, you know, and this so this necessarily includes not just uh, the university, but also the med school. You have to have teaching physicians and you have to have doctors and, and nurses and healthcare professionals and public health professionals be willing to stand up to the mob. And we're going to see we're going to see if they're willing to do that, because in some of the fields of medicine, it's clear they're part of the mob. Well, it is true that mob rule, science by mob rule and, and health by mob rule is a terrifying uh, a thing. I am hoping that, um, that, you know, we're in the midst of, of a real Frankly, I'm calling it a moral panic right now. It's, it's all so raw. The death, of course, of George Floyd was horrific. And I'm hoping that this will fade a bit. It, it Believe me, it won't fade completely at all. I do think we are we're entering uh, a much heightened phase of what I call PCMD. But uh, that's one thing I am hoping. And second thing, well, I'll keep writing, and so will Dr. Uh, Goldfarb, I know. And I also know a lot of deans who really are uh, impatient with this. Uh, unfortunately, now, as you say, there's almost a purity test people have to go through now. Um, but, uh, but my question to, to my colleagues is, what more can they do than uh, serve their underserved, whether they're frankly black or white, but uh, uh, patients as best they can. And to be honest, we are not doing as good a job. There's no question about that. So I think there's lots of room for improvement, but I don't think it should be based on a, you know, a purity test about how you see, how you see our nation in terms of racism one way or the other. It's whether you're devoted to your patients and we allocate, you know, quality services to people in, in neighborhoods that are underserved. She is Dr. Sally Sattel. She's a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, visiting professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University's Irving Medical Center. Dr. Sattel, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. You could imagine my surprise when I saw hashtag boycott Starbucks trending on Twitter because it's not normally conservatives driving these boycotts. And Starbucks, I mean, this is where I learned everything I know about race relations, right, from those race together conversations with my local barista. But that's that was the case. Hashtag boycott Starbucks. What's going on? Well, what was going on past tense was an internal memo. That was sent to Starbucks employees that warned staffers against wearing accessories or clothes bearing messages in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. The memo obtained by BuzzFeed reminded staffers at Starbucks that messages are prohibited under the company's policy against accessories that, quote, advocated a political, religious or personal issue, unquote. Numerous employees told BuzzFeed, however, the company regularly allows or even encourages employees to wear pins in support of LGBTQ equality, especially during Pride Month every June. 
Now, uh, Starbucks uh, was quick to respond uh, that uh, we're committed to taking action, learning and supporting our black partners, customers and communities. The Starbucks Foundation is committing one million dollars to organizations promoting racial equity and more inclusive and just communities uh, nominated by Starbucks partners. We're going to continue to work to confront bias and racism and so on and so forth. All of this tweeting out with all sorts of links and I mean, if I can't have a race together conversation with my local barista over a frothy frappuccino, where where will I ever get the enlightenment I seek that only Starbucks can confer, of course, in conjunction with Black Lives Matter? Well, only a hashtag campaign could move a woke company like Starbucks. They did a full reversal saying that uh, black Starbucks leaders and the Starbucks Black Partner Network are going to make 250,000 shirts available to its company-operated partners in North America to affirm its support for Black Lives Matter. Until the shirts arrive in the stores, partners will be able to wear their BLM pin or T-shirt, the company said. We've heard you want to show your support, so just be you. We are so proud of your passionate support of our common humanity. That's so inspired. I mentioned this yesterday in passing BlackLivesMatter.com slash what we believe. Go right to their what we believe section. I'll give you an example of what they believe. We disrupt, I'm quoting, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as an extended families and quote unquote villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Because, of course, children have as much agency as their parents. What does that have to do with any of the issues being discussed here? What does that have to do with racism? It has nothing to do with it. Because Black Lives Matter is a front for neo-Marxists of all races. And yet you have poltroons across the political spectrum going to Black Lives Matter events, raising the profile and the popularity of Black Lives Matter. Remarkable. The ignorance and the cowardice. Uh, Yahoo YouGov poll out this week, four years ago, Only 29 percent of Americans approved of the Black Lives Matter movement. Now it's 57 percent brainwashed with ignorance. Just the same Marxist twaddle we've been hearing for 100 years since the the Bolshevik Revolution. Now you've got Republicans propagating it, too, like Mitt Romney. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com for podcasts of the program and uh, on social media at Dan Proft Show as well, Facebook and Twitter. Part of yesterday's sell-off was certainly related to the uh, increasing reports about a so-called second wave or uh, certainly states that have opened up seeing more COVID-19 infections. Now, they're also doing more testing. So, for example, testing increased in Florida 37 percent in two weeks. Confirmed cases have risen 28 percent. Although uh, and in some states like Arizona, cases have increased by 73 percent in the last two weeks. The tests have increased by just 53 percent. But you still have to look at the subtext. Wall Street Journal reports a quarter of all the cases in the state are in Indian reservations, which especially have especially high risk populations. Native Americans have 
rates of diabetes twice those of whites. The rate of obesity is 50 percent higher. So, I mean, again, it's like what we know about uh, the disparity in life expectancy, underlying health conditions between whites and blacks. Uh, Nobody likes it. Nobody wishes it was that way, but it is that way. And so it makes certain populations that have a certain prevalence, that have a greater prevalence of certain comorbidities, more vulnerable, which is why you want different people in different circumstances to take different precautions. The uh, one metric, though, that is more important than cases, because this is about the healthcare system, also by extension about the severity of the cases and the rate of recovery, hospitalizations in Arizona, the weekly rolling average for COVID hospitalizations has been flat for a month. Hospitals in Arizona and California have reported an increase in cases from U.S. citizens and green card holders returning from Mexico where hospitals were overwhelmed. But with 22% of ICU beds and 62% of ventilators available, Arizona hospitals should have the capacity to manage an increase in patients as it reopens as needed. Deaths also not surging. Texas has recorded 151 deaths this past week versus 221 in the last week of April. Florida reported 232 deaths, 72 fewer than the last week of April. I mean, I hate to get into just all the the recitation of just dry stats, but again, because you have scaremongering going on again, we have to go back to some of the metrics and do a little bit of comparison where we were at the height versus where we are now in the context of additional testing when it comes to cases and then the healthcare system's capacity to handle more hospitalizations, more severe cases. And the coverage of this makes it increasingly difficult, particularly against the backdrop of the civil unrest over the last couple of weeks. Tom Elliott over at uh, Grabeen put together a nice mashup of how most of the press covered the protests and even the rioting versus how most of the press covered the reopen rallies. And a far more serious scene. Uh, watch these images. Really just an ugly, a dangerous scene at the state capitol in Reopen Michigan. As we look at this extreme group of people. Those pictures and those clashes really show um, the, the chaos. And you're out there with, with, um, with guns? I don't want to call them rallies. They're not protests. These quote-unquote protests, I, I don't even think that that's the right word, uh, because protests are supposed to be peaceful. I'm not embarrassed to say that I was afraid. It's not clear what they're demanding, demanding to infect other people, demanding to make other people sick. It's dangerous, and these people can take this home with them and hurt their families and all the rest. I'd like to ask them if they're willing to sign away their right to treatment if and when they get infected. Who the hell do you think you are? I don't understand what is wrong with people. Stay at home. And here comes the pivot. I, I, I want to be clear in how I characterize this. This is a, mostly a protest. Uh, it is not. Uh, it is not generally speaking unruly. That ain't a riot. What we're seeing right now in Minneapolis. Excuse me. Any reasonable person would say we shouldn't be destroying other people's property. But these are not reasonable times. And please show me where it says that protests are supposed to be polite and peaceful. The beautiful thing is we're seeing citizens who are caring and concerned. They're hitting the streets. Heartwarming to see so many people turn out peacefully. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, who of course hosts a special report. Number one best-selling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's daring gamble to win World War II. Brett, thanks for joining us. Just setting aside the media coverage for a second, because it's just so obvious, I don't know that it needs comment or additional comment, but the reporting on the so-called second wave or or even just the, the continuation of the first wave with states that have reopened and the, all the contextual factors that have to be considered. Yeah, I think it's important to put it in context. Um, 
you know, we go through these these waves of coverage, obviously, and COVID and the coverage of COVID uh, took a backseat largely in, in much of the press once the protest began. And, you know, many, as we saw, of those protests devolved into riots and looting. Um, that coverage is now coming back as that dies down. COVID's coming up. The stats are the stats. I mean, you're right. There is more testing. I think the stat that's worth worth watching more is the hospitalizations as they go up, not because they're going to get overwhelmed, just because there are more people, numbers going into the hospital. Uh, And, you know, I mean, we've seen all of these places be fine as far as the ability to handle that. And you guys in McCormick Place and didn't really have anybody go down there. Uh, There's people in yeah, there's people in New York and, and all over the place that had Army Corps of Engineer facilities that didn't see anybody. So it's not the capacity. It's just the fact that those hospitalizations are going up. Uh, you had a, a, a really compelling interview with Attorney General Barr this week, uh, and we uh, played snippets from it. And I thought one of the more, more telling exchanges was him addressing this idea that, uh, you know, he's uh, the president's lawyer and he's supposed to be the people's lawyer. And so he. He shouldn't be, uh, you know, flacking for the president by relitigating what did or didn't happen in 2016 and 2017. Here's what Barr said. You know, here's the thing: for the first time in American history, police organizations and the uh, national security organizations were used to spy on a campaign, and there was no basis for it. And the media largely drove that, and all kinds of sensational claims were being made about the president that could have affected the election. And then later on in his administration, there were actions taken that really appear to be efforts to sabotage uh, his campaign. And that has to be looked at. And if people want to say that I'm political because I am looking at those potential abuses of power, so be it. But that's the job of the attorney general. And it seems to me the job of, of the media, and you do it nicely and talking about coverage, is to cover stories that are important, even if they're not the most popular, even if it's not what everybody's focused on. And that's why that interview is relevant, not just because of the Flynn case and more developments on that case this week, but also to remind people about the precedent that was set, why the investigation is occurring, because uh, being a little forward looking is a good idea. And that Durham report is going to come. Yeah. And. I think it's important that, you know, people beyond Fox News understand uh, what's happening. I mean, there are some places that have to explain from the beginning because they haven't covered it from the beginning. Yeah. And um, and that needs to be, you know, it's going to come out. We're going to see what this leads to. I'm not saying that it's definitive going to lead to uh, criminal charges. But boy, it sure sounds like that. It sounded like uh, the attorney general was saying that the grand jury that had been impaneled was on pause um, because of COVID and that it's firing back up again. And that's produced some delay. So we'll see what comes out of it and we'll cover it as it comes. Um, I do think it's important. I mean, think about, you know, what we saw with impeachment, what we saw with prior to that, the coverage of Russia and collusion. There hasn't been a single person who's been charged, let alone charged and convicted, as a result of the two and a half years of Russia investigation. Not even the Russians who were indicted. And, um, you know, it's worth pointing that out. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me, as you say, to the importance of the converse, the importance of the issues at stake here, the, the way to deal with the left is really simply just to, to switch it up and say Trump loses in November. 
and Joe Biden's incoming administration, would you be happy, copacetic, uninterested if Trump used his personnel uh, the same if he actively used it? I don't know what Obama did or didn't do, although he's in the meetings. If Trump was in meetings with his senior people and they were engaged in uh, using the powers of the state to investigate the incoming administration and to the extent there were Trump holdovers for some period of time, they continue that investigation into all things Joe Biden. Would you be fine with that? And of course, no one would say yes. Yeah, I mean, that's a, the prism by which we look at things a lot and what would happen if this was flipped. Um, and I, I think that, you know, you could even do that with the calls now by Joe Biden that he's worried that Trump is not going to relinquish the White House if he loses or somehow he's going to push back the election. Um, that is not what has been said. He said November 3rd is when the election is going to happen. And the only people the last time that held on to the thought that the president was illegitimate were the Democrats. So I, I think you have to look through all sides to be able to cover it fairly. Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, <laughs> special report, 5 p.m. Chicago time, weekdays, number one bestselling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Daring Gamble to win World War II. Brett, thanks for joining us. All right, we'll see you. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, President Trump in Dallas yesterday, uh, Economic Roundtable Confab, had uh, this to say about uh, race relations in America. We have to work together to confront bigotry and prejudice wherever they appear, but we'll make no progress and heal no wounds by falsely labeling tens of millions of decent Americans as racist or bigots. We have to get everybody together. We have to be in the same, same path. No, no, no. You've got it all wrong, Mr. President. You've got the tone wrong. In addition to, as Joe Biden said, you've got to be willing to discard 10 to 15 percent of Americans, 33 to 50 million Americans uh, that are bad people. Proper, just Joe Biden knows just the right uh, number. Uh, Hollywood has it right. Hollywood's got the tonality of the moment right. Listen to this public service announcement from some of your favorite actors and actresses like Aaron Paul from Breaking Bad and. Uh, Kristen Bell from Forgetting Sarah Marshall and Julianne Moore and a whole host of them. I take responsibility. I take responsibility. I take responsibility. I take responsibility for every unchecked moment, for every time it was easier to ignore than to call it out for what it was. Every not so funny joke. Every unfair stereotype. Every blatant injustice, no matter how big or small. Every time I remained silent. Every time I explained away police brutality. Or turned a blind eye. You get the gist of it. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jim Pinkerton, co-chair of the Rake Coalition, contributor to the American Conservative and Breitbart. And uh, Jim has, uh, you penned an excellent piece in the AmericanConservative.com. It's the perfect comparison what you're hearing in that uh, PSA is a, a good example of what you're talking about. This is Radical Chic 2.0. We're all in Leonard Bernstein's penthouse again, aren't we? 
Well, exactly. That was the title of a piece by the famous author Tom Wolfe back in 1970, on June 8th, to be exact, of 1970 in New York Magazine. So it's the 50th anniversary, which seems sort of fitting to celebrate it, as it were, by noting that the exact same phenomenon of, of radical uh, Hollywood elites uh, are celebrating the same sorts of people. Uh, 50 years ago, it was the Black Panthers, and now it's Black Lives Matter, which is a, uh, which many of its members openly proclaim their devotion to and lineage to the, the Black Panthers from half a century ago. And so, and and, uh, and something else. Back some, then, yeah, so, so, sorry to interrupt, but something else that's not new here. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised if we know a little bit about history, even recent history, going back to the 70s uh, as the comparison here, is that uh, the uh, the champagne socialist, the wealthy aligning with the not wealthy, uh, you know, out, out of a sense of guilt in part, out of, you know, buying license to behave the way they want to behave like so many Hollywood predators did. I'm supporting the liberal causes so I can behave like a, a barbarian the way Harvey Weinstein did. It's a combination of dynamics, isn't it? Well, and it's also a, a, a mutual feeling among the rich and the poor that the real enemy is the middle class. And that's a, a very strong scene in, in Wolf's piece. And it's been, frankly, a very strong scene through, you know, the history going back to the Roman Republic where, the, you know, I think Teddy Kennedy, uh, uh, you know, he says, I'm a great, I'm rich, but I, I'm a great tribune of the poor. And so you people should vote, feel guilty and vote for me so I can help them. I can take your money and give it to them. And that's, you know, a scene running, running through this. Remember, these, none, of these, none of these Hollywood celebrities have any plan on paying taxes at all. They, they always find ways to, to beat the IRS, sicking uh, ordinary people with a bill. But they, they enjoy the feeling of posing on a video or tweeting about how woke they are. And again, this is what we saw back with, you know, the famous conductor Leonard Bernstein, you know, and all his liberal Fifi friends from the late sixties and early seventies. And there's sort of there's kind of nothing new about that, which is the sort of point that, you know, uh, conservatives ought to recognize, which is show me a pathology and I'll show you that it's happened before and therefore there's solutions to it if we choose to do apply them. Well, and, and, and so, so that, that uh, scene in Bernstein's uh, penthouse, I remember my, my favorite uh, uh, line from that, uh, from Radical Chic and Tom Wolfe describing the interaction between Leonard Bernstein and one of the Black Panthers talking about his own penthouse. He asked the Black Panther, you know, aren't you offended by the opulence of uh, this place? And the Black Panther says, no. And Leonard Bernstein says, well, I am. I mean, it's his home. Um, and so so what binds them? I, I know you said that it's, it's the antipathy towards the middle class, but what's in it for each of them? What's in it for the, the poor is the income from middle income families. And what's in it for the rich is the destruction of middle income values. Right. And, and the, the, look, a lot of rich people, people sometimes with good reason, feel guilty. So what what better way to alleviate your guilt? than throwing a party uh, for poor people or radical people. That, that doesn't mean that you know, Leonard Bernstein gave up his penthouse, right? right. He might have said, I'm offended by it. He had, he had his cake and he ate it, too. He wasn't that offended. I offended. Yeah. But I'm offended. 
Yeah, right, right. He was offended, but not offended enough to give it up. But 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 so I mean, the the, the guilt is there something also a dynamic, an aspect of this that's also more pernicious. That um, a lot of these champagne socialists, and again, this is not categorical against rich people. It's rich people that have a certain ideology, champagne socialism, that um, they really um, don't believe that uh, the poor have agency or should have agency. They can't take care of themselves. This is where I enter. And uh, it stems from a certain white man's burden, really racism, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, the, the phrase is noblesse oblige. Uh, the French word for the obligation of the rich. And, you know, you could say the rich have an obligation to society to help everybody, you know, get ahead and get a job and so on and get it, you know, so on. But that noblesse oblige turns into, you know, I don't actually want to go to the ghetto or the hood or some poor Hispanic or Native American community. I want a few of them to come here to Fifth Avenue. And we'll have a party for them. And then, of course, when the party's over, we'll send them back home. Uh-huh. And uh, 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 you know, but we will with a check from us, and 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 our and the glorification. And this becomes, as Wolf said, it becomes a kind of status symbol. In other words, uh, you know, look, if you're if you're on Fifth Avenue, you got everything. So, but the one thing you don't have is some kind of cool new hip political cachet that says, "Well, look, I'm I'm down with." the Black Panthers or Black Lives Matter or, or Antifa. And that gives you, a, in this world of, you know, Manhattan penthouses and Beverly Hills mansions, this gives you a kind of, uh, uh, you know, a cliche, uh, cachet. You nailed it. He's Jim Pinkerton, co-chair of the Ray Coalition, contributor to the American Conservative and Breitbart. And uh, I will tweet out his piece at Dan Prof Show. Radical chic, still cringy after all these years. Nailed it. <laughs> great, great piece, Jim. Thanks for joining us. Thank The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Our next guest terms reopen America, getting back to work uh, as an economic and political fantasy. Incumbent politicians, he writes, crave a true growth rebound and the depth of collapse makes some possible attractive short term numbers. But taking them seriously will merely set the stage for a new round of disillusion as nationwide protests against systemic racism and police brutality show disillusion is America's one big growth sector right now. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that the last point that he makes is a good one. There's some disagreement, though, just about how structurally unsound our economy was going into the pandemic. There's not much disagreement about how much damage has the lockdowns have done. It's just a question and a, a, a discussion about uh, uh, the extent and the pace at which something approximating a recovery could occur. 
For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the author of the piece I was referencing. He is James K. Galbraith, professor of government and chair in government and business relations at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the UT University of Texas at Austin, former ED of the Joint Economic Committee and author of Inequality, What Everyone Needs to Know, as well as Welcome to the Poison Chalice, The Destruction of Greece and the Future of Europe. Professor Galbraith, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, I spoke with uh, Steve Moore from the journal earlier in the week uh, in part about your piece and some of the points you make about how America's economy has changed over the last 50 years. And so as uh, those changes uh, mean that it is less likely to have a rubber band snapback that some were uh, projecting, even hoping for. Um, But uh, he disagrees with uh, the implicit uh, premise of your piece, which is that America's economy was unsound or on shaky ground going into the pandemic. Give us a more complete picture of what you thought about America's economy in terms of structural infirmities pre-pandemic, pre-lockdown. Well, there are three things that are, I think, most troublesome. One is that the structure of many of our most advanced industries, you can think about aviation, for example, or uh, oil field services, energy services, uh, is oriented toward the global market. That's a, these are global investment goods. Uh, and so if you think about aircraft, uh, half of the planes in the world are on the ground right now. Orders for new aircraft are going to be slashed if there are any at all. If you think about oil, that's a commodity that has a global price, and it's well below the cost of production in the Permian Basin in Texas, where we have our major fracking fields these days. So you're looking at things which it's it's very hard for me to see how U.S. government policy uh, can keep those industries and make those industries snap back. It depends upon world conditions, and world conditions are not favorable. So that's one piece of it. Second piece of it has to do with all the millions of jobs that have been created in the services sector, everybody taking in each other's washing, if you like, a lot of restaurants and bars and public events and all kinds of things that uh, actually created the jobs that that came back after the after the great um, financial crisis 13 years ago. And the problem there is that uh, people basically are, 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 these are things which are, to a degree, from the consumer's point of view, optional. Uh, and so there's a huge amount of saving in the system, thanks to all the money that people were paid in April. But the chances that they're going to rush out and spend it, not all that great. And if they don't, then the jobs don't come back. And the third thing is debt. People have mortgages, they have rent, they have utility bills. Uh, These things have gone on even though their employment's been interrupted and people are going to hoard funds, conserve, save in order to meet those bills first and foremost. Uh, And right now there are a lot of arrears. People are not being evicted because there's a moratorium. That all comes to end in the summer, end of the summer. So I I think there's a lot of anticipatory saving going on, quite rightly. Uh, and for all these reasons, it, it, you can you can pl- flush money into the system. It doesn't mean it's going to show up as a big revival in all these service jobs that uh, we, we've been basically living, uh, built up prosperity in our low rate of unemployment over the past um, in the past decade or so. Uh, so those are the things that are, are most prominent in my mind. Is saying this is going to be a long, difficult problem. Well, that's certainly the uh, the CBO's Congressional Budget Office's view. I mean, talking about 10 years to get back to pre-pandemic uh, uh, rates of GDP growth, for example. Uh, but when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what uh, Jay Powell 
uh, did and said this week that uh, roiled the markets on Thursday and uh, what some of the Fed's projections about employment in particular could mean for the rate of recovery. More with uh, Professor James K. Galbraith, Professor of Government, Chair in the Government Business Relations at, at, the, at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. More with Professor Galbraith when we return. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking the road to recovery with Professor James K. Galbraith, Professor of Government and Chair in Government and Business Relations at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin former ED of the Joint Economic Committee and author of books including Inequality, What Everyone Needs to Know, and Welcome to the Poison Chalice, The Destruction of Greece and the Future of Europe. And, uh, Professor, this week, uh, Jay Powell is saying uh, interest rates likely to remain between uh, zero and a quarter percent for the next couple of years, uh, projecting out about a little over 9 percent unemployment will be down to 9 percent unemployment by year's end. Uh, and I wonder when you're thinking about recovery, uh, people are talking about the unemployment number as an indication of recovery. But could we have unemployment, and, uh, higher unemployment and a real economic recovery businesses that have good looking or even better looking balance sheets, but fewer employees? And then it becomes a matter of sort of the Fortune 1000 companies versus um, uh those uh, middle and lower income uh, workers and what the government may have to do to to uh, to address the problems that those middle and lower income workers are going to have when forbearance and stimulus run out. Well, I, I listened to Chairman Powell and I, I thought he was quite candid and I, I was glad he spoke when he did because he got the blame for the stock market drop rather than me. Uh, <laughs> you know, in some ways I thought the presentation, which is basically based on these forecasting models, was not pessimistic enough. What we're seeing here is, first of all, the unemployment number, you know, and I think that Chairman Powell actually did say this, uh, is a mask for uh, people who are looking for work, a great many people will simply stop looking, um, and that purchasing power comes off the market. The, the problem that I have is that when you're looking at numbers as big as this, and we've got 30, 33 million or so who are seeking unemployment insurance at the present time, you're looking at a problem that can't wait for a few years for till 2222 before it's addressed. You're going to have cascading social difficulties. You're good, I mean, the waves of protests that we're having now, uh, which were animated by a very specific set of injustices, will be amplified by the economic desperation. People who, are, who begin to be thrown out of their homes are going to say, what did I do wrong? I did what I was told. I stayed home to fight the pandemic, and I'm now I'm losing my, my, my living space. I'm losing my family's safety. People are going to be very, very angry over that. So I think one needs to really think in terms of a kind of big transformations that will uh, try and provide people with a measure of safety that they don't have now. 
uh, and it, that will be the foundation for rebuilding the economy. And then you have to think about how services will be provided, because a great many people who run restaurants, you know, they say, okay, I can reopen, but how long can I hang on if I've only got 25 or 50 percent of my customer base coming in, if I can't have a bar? These kinds of things make it, you know, yes, people will hang on for a while, but how long? Right, and I mean, and, and, and again, the, the response, there may be a response from uh, government to relax some of the regulations in place right now over that period of time. But, but it seems to me the real, an additional threat that's not per, perhaps being properly considered is when you talk about uh, people being in dire straits and not appreciating how many people will be and how soon, then you have the uh, entree of government. And so you're, you have the, the perspective, like George W. Bush said, uh, when he greenlighted TARP and uh, all of the government action that was taken in the 2008 financial crisis, which was to say, if I, if it's a choice between Herbert Hoover and FDR, I want to be FDR, and th- this president or the next one may make the same decision. Uh, yes, and the the uh, actually in April what happened was very much modeled on TARP, and the system was flushed with cash. And we now have about a 33% savings rate of people with households basically stored up the cash. So there's a really a question of, of you know, uh, what people are going to do, uh, which goes beyond whether they have the resources, whether middle-class households have some money stored up. Are they going to go out and spend it? If I relax the, re- the regulations on those restaurants, will people crowd into the bars? I don't think they will. I think we've got to come to grips with the fact that people are going to be very, very cautious husband their resources very carefully going forward. And what the New Deal did, that was after four years, was they said, okay, given that's the case, we've got to start getting activity going and we have to organize it. And that's really a very different proposition from what happened in April or what happened in in what George W. Bush and and Barack Obama did in 2008, 2009. Well, and it seems to me that um, that realization is dawning on some of the folks around the president, too, because uh, after the the $3 trillion phase four uh, stimulus disaster relief, whatever you want to term it, was uh, sort of dismissed uh, that that Nancy Pelosi marshaled through the House. Now President Trump this week talking more about uh, finding ways to get money in the hands of Americans again, something akin to what uh, was previously done. Well, the more people understand that this is going to require you know, a new structure, the better. Uh, I don't know exactly what that structure is. I'm thinking in terms of cooperative models where there's some profit sharing and some, uh, some protection of losses. Uh, but one has to have uh, you know, a services sector. One has to have all of these things that we had before. Uh, but if they're operating at much lower uh, rates of, of utilization, there's got to be some protection for them. Uh, and you look at models of economies in, in Asia. I mean, you look at you look at, at Korea. You look at, um, at, at well, you look at China or Vietnam, and you look at Singapore. You look at other places. Uh, you'll find that that this is in fact the case that there are protections that we that one does. Uh, have a system where enterprises can go forward uh, and go through difficult periods without disappearing. Uh, and this is the difficulty we have now is that basically the owners of small businesses employ a lot of people saying, well, you know, I think I'll just board it up and walk away because I really can't make it work. Uh, that's where we need to think about how to, how to reform the system. Uh, I speak, you, you mentioned, well, I mentioned it, and then you uh, added to it, uh, talking about the 2008 financial crisis. And uh, are you worried at all that what you're describing could 
engender another banking crisis? Uh, it potentially could. Uh, I don't know what the situation is in U.S. Uh, with U.S. banks. I certainly listened to Chairman Powell's remarks on that. Uh, people who are looking at European banks, I think, have lots of reasons to worry. Uh, and a banking crisis can start anywhere and spread anywhere. Uh, so, yes, uh, at some point, what can look at, we, we can worry about the effect on the financial system, too. Yes. He is Professor James K. Galbraith, Professor of Government, Chair in Government and Business Relations at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Professor, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. So you say you want to be a police officer, particularly in Portland or Seattle, for that matter. But at this point in big cities with the move to defund, dismantle and demonize police, it really doesn't matter which big city we're talking about. Here's a, a fun exchange that was filmed and posted on Twitter. Uh, just a random person that uh, police clearly have, Portland police clearly have had previous interactions with uh, who call police. There's uh, three white police officers. I believe the woman filming this is white. And I believe that she mainly wanted to call the police to get the police response, to film the police and to try to provoke the police into doing something. But uh, here's the sort of thing police have to deal with, and here's how they normally do uh, the unreasonable person uh, in a situation that uh, is not escalating. It's just obviously transparently provocative. Behavior is very erratic. Oh, is it? And Jamie, every time I just try to have a normal conversation with you, it just goes right to insults. Um, is that against the law? Is it well, a, is but, against the law to insult a man in blue? Do you understand how it's not a normal conversation? Uh... You guys get called you know, all the time. Why we're concerned? And you get and you take down the blacks and you get on video. Have a good day, Jamie. We're I want him arrested we're, we're, for physical assault. You we're, face. We're not, we're not taking a report to you, Jamie. Especially when you're gonna scream like that. Have a good day. Bye, Jamie. We'll see you later. <laughs> I should have probably uh, warned you about the screeching, but uh, this is uh, the interaction with the public. And this is these are police officers who um, understand the situation for what it to be and de-escalate. And regardless of the uh, perpetrator the of this attempted fraud, um, the larger point, and this is made by Glenn Lowry, uh, Brown University economics professor I've referenced uh, earlier in this week a couple times. He's uh, raised his profile and good because he's one of the more even uh, handed, sensible, thoughtful voices out there. Uh, black professor, I should mention. He um, writes about uh, the way police treat black people and the idea that uh, treat police treat black people more harshly than other populations. He uh, says in response to that uh, suggestion, this is a representation that has developed a life of its own. The claim is the police are hunting black people, black people at risk. There's an epidemic of violence against black people, unarmed, innocent black people. 
There is a problem, but I think its scale is exaggerated. There are approximately 330 million people in the United States, and there are many tens of thousands of encounters between civilians and police every day, 375 million annually, in fact. We, have, we take a half a dozen, maybe a dozen, admittedly outrageous, disturbing incidents of police violence, and we form this into a general account of how people are treated. I think it's dangerous. It is dangerous. You know why? Because misunderstanding what's happening and then giving into uh, the hysteria that is fomented around that misunderstanding makes for terrible public policy. You know, like ceding six blocks of your city to the mob. This is Dan Proft. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danprofshow.com for podcasts of the program and uh, on social media at Dan Prof Show as well, Facebook and Twitter. The warlord uh, who is the uh, de facto head of CHAZ, the uh, autonomous state in Seattle, he could have somebody like, uh, and I'm going to get you sucker, somebody could carry it in a boombox right behind him as he walks around the, the six-block uh, territory with uh, AK-47. Tucker Carlson uh, offered this on um, the uh, preeminent warlord of the flux state, Chaz, in Seattle. It took barely a day for the nation of Chaz to get its first warlord, and it was quite a promotion for him. Just a week ago, Raz Simone was an up-and-coming rapper. He was also a super host for Airbnb. Now, he's a monarch. In videos taken within Chaz, Simone is seen patrolling the area with his allies. They have guns. They're declaring, we're the police now. In one clip, the monarch's men assault a citizen of Chaz for spray painting graffiti inside the zone. Just like the mafia, Chaz doesn't put up with nonsense like that in their own neighborhood. That's right. His Highness uh, Raz Simone in that incident said this. Declare this. We are the police of this community now. We are the leaders of this community now. And, uh, of course, among their demands and the number of demands shifts depending on which posting you're looking at. There's five. There's 30. They're different. They're the same. By the way, and if you haven't read the What We Believe at Black Lives Matter, you should really go to BlackLivesMatter.com and read it because you have these cowardly politicians across the political spectrum attending these Black Lives Matter get togethers, rallies, whatever, because it's me. That's the way I show I care about black people. It's the most ridiculous thing. These poltroons. Black Lives Matter is just a bunch of neo. What they believe their own words is a bunch of neo Marxist twaddle that spends as much time talking about trans as it does black people's interests. Not that they're different, I mean, at the core in terms of economic opportunity, healthcare, education, so forth. But it's all identitarian pablum. It's all Marxism dressed up as racial justice. Just remarkable. And so the defund, disband, dismantle police movement carries on. You had uh, Portland officials cut 6% from their city's police budget, which is a victory for police in that wackadoodle city. The... uh, Warlords, the monarch, uh, Simone, and uh, those 
occupying that six-block uh, area known as Chaz. They're calling for a 50% cut in the Seattle uh, police force budget. You know what's happening in Minneapolis. You've heard what uh, Garcetti and de Blasio are, are planning to do with respect to budget cuts for their police departments in those big cities. And Lori Lightfoot in Chicago has taken what those other big city mayors are doing under advisement. It's about uh, the end of policing or the completely recasting it as some sort of uh, social service organization in the Marxist sense, not a law enforcement body. That's going to turn out to be a problem. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Corey Mills, a U.S. Army combat veteran, founder and CEO of Paysom Solutions International and Paysom Defense LLC. Corey, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. I appreciate you guys having me. Thanks. Um, So you wrote a piece at foxnews.com. Want more crime and innocent people killed? Then defund the police. Well, um, that's clearly not the uh, attitude of these big city mayors. What don't they understand? Well, you know, I appreciate you guys having me. And given the fact that uh, Mayor Lightfoot should know all too well about, you know, criminality and the fact that the city can run rampant should you not have proper police force, I'm actually completely puzzled or bemused at why there isn't further action. I mean, you've got the mayor of Seattle who, instead of identifying what's going on in the nation of Chaz, is basically saying, oh, it's nothing more than a simple block party. We have these all the time. Well, I'm not familiar with any block parties that we've ever gone to where they take over police precincts. And we start going ahead and vandalizing. And and I, I love one of her statements, which was really, really funny. Speaking of the mayor of Seattle, she was referencing, like, the businesses and things like that. She says, well, aside is reports of vandalism, property damage, and the occasional fight, there's no real serious incidents. So that's great. So you're saying that, you know, vandalism, property damage and assault, which is all criminality, no big deal. Well, this is uh, this since you're military, this sort of calls to issue again, whether or not President Trump should uh, consider using the military and perhaps in a situation like Seattle, where the local authorities have abandoned its city center remarkably. Uh, it's pretty clear. And John Yu, who's a University of Cal Berkeley um, uh, law professor makes the point again that under Article One, Section Eight, under the Insurrection Act of 1807, the president clearly has the power. Whether he should use it is another matter, and this has been debated since the beginning of the unrest. This is really sort of unique in Seattle, but I wonder if the mayor is fine with it. She wants to call it a, a, a festival, and if the governor is going to pretend like he doesn't know anything about it then that's the chart that Seattle and Washington state have chosen for themselves and the federal government should stay out of it. I certainly can see the president coming forward if the mayor and the governor decides to do nothing. I think that, you know, whether they're willing to accept lawlessness or not, you know, the people of, you know, citizens of America actually, you know, elect a person into office to ensure they uphold their freedoms and liberties. And one of those, the protection of Americans, you know, when you can't walk anywhere in there and, this, and, and these elected officials that are in, Seattle and within uh, uh, Washington state are just unwilling to do something. It forces the president's hand. You know, the president has continued to make uh, what are considered to be unfavorable or, or unpopular decisions. That's been always to the benefits of Americans and always on our behalf. So should he need to utilize this 1807 insurrection act, which by the way, you'll hear a lot of the left wing media go ahead and say, well, this is a 200 year old law. Well, guess what? We also have a 200 plus year old constitution. Should we ignore that as well? 
the reality is is that the Insurrection Act has been utilized by JFK, LBJ. It was utilized by President George H.W. Bush in 92 during the riots. It's not something which had sat shelved and, you know, collecting dust for 200 years and, you know, is not at the president's uh, access. Uh, I want to get your reaction to this, particularly uh, given my prefatory remarks to our discussion on Black Lives Matter, which is really just atrocious. I, I, the, the idea that you you can't be stand in solidarity with peaceful, uh, great black American citizens if you don't embrace this organization that's about, you know, whatever, eight years old is so absurd to me. But OK, in 2016, just a quarter of Americans, 27 percent told uh, Yahoo, YouGov surveyors that they approved of Black Lives Matter. Today, it's 57 percent of Americans say they have a favorable view of the movement. I mean, again, here's here's my my issue where the Black Lives Movement falls flat. You know, I can understand if it was about raising the awareness of all black lives who have been lost as a result of murder and, and, and heinous crimes. But the reality is, is that, you know, what happened to George Floyd, I'm the first to say that it was a murder charge, in my opinion. I don't think that he, you know, the tactics that were utilized were necessary for the period of time that it was utilized. But at the same time, what what, what about 77 year old David Dorn's life? You know, was the retired police captain's life didn't matter. So how do you say that black lives matter? But, yeah, oh, not his black life. So I think that, you know, the movement just falls flat. The whole narrative of it. I mean, it just becomes a, a bit of a spin you know, movement, in my opinion, for those who just want to say, well, it's time for us to protest and cause anarchy. This life matter. But hey, that one doesn't. I well, mean, well, it's playing God, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's and it's even uh, uh, let me let me be specific here from there. What we believe page. Uh, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents and children are comfortable. What, what does that have to do with black lives mattering? What does that have to do with police brutality? What does that have to do with most of the discussion that's ongoing? You have to understand that black lives matter is a veneer meant to disguise this neo-Marxist claptrap. That's that's what who's really behind this. It's Marxists of all skin colors. And uh, that's just being obscured. And uh, as I said, unfortunately, the political class and the corporate class is full of poltroons who are unwilling to do anything other than follow meekly along with the mob. Completely agree. I mean, the whole movement itself, I mean, it's, it, it's been switched back and forth. And it's for this reason. It's for that reason. It's for community outreach. It's for... And, you know, the issue is that we have so many in government who continue to pander to this. You know, you've got, you know, Democrats who are wearing the Kenta cloth and taking a knee saying that they want to raise awareness. Let's look at the facts. They're not there to raise awareness. They're there to raise DNC funding. And it's just people are actually playing right into this narrative. He is Corey Mills, U.S. Army combat veteran, founder and CEO of Paysome Solutions International, Paysome Defense LLC. He's got a good op-ed at foxnews.com. I'll tweet out at Dan Proft. Corey, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I came to get down. I came to get down. So get out your seat and jump around. Jump around. Jump around. Jump around. Jump up, jump up and get down. The podcast of the show at danproftshow.com.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, Ronald Bailey over at Reason Magazine, Reason.com. Had a piece about a couple of new studies trying to assess how many lives were saved because of the lockdown policies in the West. Are you ready for this? One of the studies comes from a team of researchers associated with the Imperial College in London. This was published in Nature because apparently they don't have quality control there. Looking at uh, the onset of the pandemic through May 4th, when the lockdowns began to lift, they estimate that the basic reproduction number of the coronavirus at the beginning of the pandemic was about 3.8. Each infected person transmits it to an average of 3.8 people. They calculate that lockdown policies cut the virus's reproduction rate to 0.66. It's an 82 percent reduction. And so they calculate in a rather simplistic counterfactual to be generous the actual toll of 130 deaths by May 4th might instead have been 3.1 million in the 11 countries they evaluated. The researchers estimated by May 4th that between 12 and 15 million people in the 11 countries had been affected, uh, representing uh, between uh, 3.2 and 4 percent of their combined populations. The uh, infection fatality rate between 0.87 and 1.08 percent. And uh, this is how they, they come up with their, their numbers. It's just remarkable that they, they're still standing for these sorts of studies and that they're still being reported uh, to be mainly used as CYA material for lockdown politicians that, like the Imperial College London, like to look at things in the abstract and ignore what's actually happening on the ground, in addition to only looking at one aspect of the risks associated with the viral outbreak, meaning only looking at the potential lethality and human cost of the virus and not the human cost of the response to the virus. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend John Tierney, contributing editor of the City Journal, former reporter and columnist at the New York Times, co-author of the new book, The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. Welcome back, John. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dan. So, uh, I mean, Neil Ferguson, uh, I don't know if he's actually part of this team, but Imperial College London's reputation is uh, untarnished by uh, what uh, was done in their name by Neil Ferguson in terms of the original projections of the the uh, the amount of death COVID-19 could inflict if uh, lockdowns weren't pursued. Right. I mean, and, you know, he has made these wild overestimates for previous pandemics, and yet he was immediately the go to guy. You know, that model, you know, got so much attention and really partly just because it was the most scary model. You know, this, that more than two million Americans would die and and it got immediate, you know, media attention, and it's what really, you know, helped prod both Britain and the United States, the leaders here, to do these lockdown measures. And it's this feeling that as long as someone comes up with some numbers, it's a way for politicians to escape blame and say, basically, well, we have to do this. The science tells us that. And meanwhile, uh, we talked with uh, Dr. Sally Sattel from uh, the American Enterprise Institute uh, earlier in the show. Meanwhile, you have... Um Stories coming out, a, a huge uh, piece in the Wall Street Journal, invest, a gr- really good investigative piece, talked to nearly 90 frontline doctors, nurses, healthcare workers in New York to analyze what went wrong in New York State's response, particularly in New York, New York City. And it wasn't, it turns out, just transferring the sick into the same, the infected with COVID-19 into the same hospital rooms with uh, non-infected and thus spreading the disease that way. Uh, in nursing homes, it was also just in hospitals. Uh, just in the hospitals in the order course, of course, of business of treating people with all sorts of afflictions, they actually spread COVID-19 in the hospitals as they did the nursing homes. This is a case where 
in New York, they were so obsessed with these projections, they thought they were going to need 110,000 hospital beds at the peak, twice their capacity. And so that was, you know, one of the reasons that they said, my God, we're going to be overwhelmed because, you know, look at these computer models. So they ordered to try and free up hospital beds to avoid running short, they ordered nursing homes to take in COVID patients. And that, so to avert this imaginary projected disaster, they created a real disaster by allowing, you know, the virus to spread in nursing homes. So it's a classic case of just of being guided by worst case scenarios and scaremongering. And it, it just, you know, it leads to terrible results. You know, and there are other estimates that Basically, the other effects of the lockdown, you know, people not going to doctors, the depression, the, you know, the various factors, that that will end up killing more people or, or costing more years of life than have died from COVID. You know, the, the, the side effects are worse than the good that's done by the lockdown, assuming there has been much good. I mean, social distancing, I think, has been effective. It's, it's very debatable how much, how much more additional good the lockdowns do. President Trump has made it pretty clear there's not going to be, at least there's not going to be advocacy for a lockdown if there is a second wave this fall, almost regardless of the lethality, at least not from him, although that may be very different at the state level. And you wonder what, if any, lessons were learned by the last three months or from the last three months by these politicians who have completely politicized it, along with some public health professionals who have completely politicized it, saying different things depending on different circumstances politically, but not medically. Exactly. I, I mean, I'm hoping that, you know, people will learn something and, and just the blatant hypocrisy in telling everyone, everyone has to stay locked down. You can't go to a funeral. You can't do this. And then suddenly when the Black Lives Matter movement said, well, then it's fine for everyone to go out on the street because we approve of that. And getting, you know, a thousand so-called public health professionals to sign on to that. I mean, it's very hard to take them seriously after that. So I'm hoping that no one will stand for this again. And I think as people see the economic consequences, this, you know, more, you know, they're just going to linger, that there'll be huge resistance. You would think, but the mania that some of our politicians have for control and for ceding power to these, you know, professionals is hard to know exactly what will happen, but I hope sanity will prevail. Well, right, and the fear that they induce, uh, even when restrictions are lifted, you're going to have people reticent to presume things that are perfectly safe because you're getting so much arbitrariness from politicians as it pertains to these reopening phases. At least we see that in states like New York and Illinois and California and elsewhere. And while Cuomo in New York has conceded uh, the experts weren't exactly 100 percent accurate, uh, what a grand concession that was, you know, he still has to be a member in good standing of the technocracy. And, And those experts are very useful for the politicians, right, because they cover each other's backsides. I'm just relying on the experts and the experts saying I'm just giving advice and counsel. And so neither one is at fault when things turn out to be wrong. Exactly. I mean, I call them, you know, that that they're the modern equivalent of the Oracle of Delphi. You know, the ancient Greeks, when they they wanted to decide whether to go to war and make some decision, they would go consult the Oracle. However stupid the advice was, it at least gave them, well, the Oracle told us to do it. So not my fault. And it relieves them of responsibility. And, you know, and the myth is that these epidemiologists can estimate this, that, you know, they can estimate how quickly the virus is spreading. 
but they're not considering all the side effects, the costs and benefits. That's that's a much more complicated question. And they're also really biased. I mean, you know, that old saying, never ask the barber if you need a haircut. Well, never ask an epidemiologist if you need a lockdown. <laughs> um, you know, that, that I mean, of course, I mean, his yeah. job depends on, 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 on stopping the spread of the virus. So they'd be happy if we all, you know, never left our homes at all. Look what happened. Yeah, I mean, look at the WHO this week and what a cluster that was again. I mean, it's just it's just remarkable. And yet experts, 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 science, 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 data, data, data. And that's all they have to rinse and repeat, uh, at least for some. He is John Tierney, contributing editor of the City Journal, former reporter and columnist at The New York Times, co-author of the new book, The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. And check out his latest piece at uh, City Journal, city-journal.org, which I'll tweet out. They blinded us with science. John, thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Dan. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, Mayor Jenny Durkin of Seattle out of hiding. Uh, Trump has beaten her out of the brush. So she's responding on Twitter and she's also responding more formally to the. Uh, creation of the uh, flux state, the, I don't know, country of Chaz, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle, suggesting that the takeover of that six-block area in downtown Seattle is exemplary of patriotism, not terrorism. Uh, Here are uh, some of those patriots she's speaking of. And uh, the newly minted head of state, Raz Simone, rapper and Airbnb uh, proprietor, Raz Simone, saying this. We are the police of this community now. We are the leaders of this community now. For more on all of this and the dynamics that underscore it. We're pleased to be joined by James Lindsay, best-selling author and founder of New Discourses. James, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, glad to be here. Uh, it's really a remarkable turn of events uh, to some extent. I, I, it's probably less remarkable to a person like you who's actually studied the sort of death cult dynamics of identitarian politics and this orthodox sect within it, the anti-racists. Uh, but uh, when you have the combination of uh, uh, of a, a appeaser in a position of power like Mayor Durkin giving license to the mob, as is the case in Seattle, this is what can result. Yeah, in institutional settings, this is pretty much how it always plays out, is that you have a somewhat sympathetic base within the population, and then you have a handful of skilled agitators who know how to work the system, and then they have an administrative appeaser 
who makes it happen. If you look at uh, the case of the Evergreen State College, which is also in Washington and Olympia yeah. nearby there, uh, the same thing happened to them a few years ago. They utterly melted down. It, more, it almost ended the college. If they didn't have money coming in to prop them up, it would have collapsed the college, turned into a war zone on campus, students dragging people out of uh, their cars, trying to find people carrying bats around a patrol. Well, and, 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 kind and, of dynamics, and, exactly. and, and so just to interrupt on Evergreen State, because it's interesting you bring that up. So uh, Brett Weinstein was a leftist uh, professor who got mugged by reality and literally mugged as well, in addition to by reality, also by students. Uh, for not wanting to go along with the day without white people on campus. Uh, Explain to me, if you can, why liberals, not leftists, but liberals can't see the path they're on leading to the evergreen states and now leading to the nation of Chaz inside Seattle. Well, there's a few reasons. And let me point out, since you connected me to the anti-racism thing, that's exactly what Brett Weinstein was taken over by was the anti-racist, uh, critical race theory cult that's sort of taking over. People on the left, the political left, the liberals on the political left, which there are, uh, not the leftists, not these extremists, can't tend to see it because a few reasons. One, they think, well, it comes from scholarship, therefore they must know what they're talking about. It pushes certain moral buttons that they understand, well, racism is bad, so I want to be against racism. Fascism is bad, so I want to be against fascism. So anti-racism, anti-fascism must mean good things. And then most importantly, for people on that side especially, but really for everybody who's decent in our society, being called a racist still works like a rhetorical nuclear weapon. They can't, re- they can't tolerate being called a racist even when the, the definition – if you read the scholarship that they, they think gives it legitimacy, the definition doesn't even mean what they think it means. It means something different. But that – name is so powerful that they can't take it and so they end up as we keep seeing videos of on their knees apologizing praying to groups of black people washing their feet to try to be you know absolved of their original sin of white privilege and they've been taught that this privilege narrative this whole thing white guilt is is super important and that they have to take up a role and that's how the anti-racist cult grows and gains followers and and not even just followers though also sympathetic supporters outside of it who don't really know what they're supporting because it sounds good uh when we come back i wanted to talk about uh, critical race theory and intersectionality a little bit more but connected as you did in a piece really good piece to the workplace uh, more people are going to experience it there than on the streets of seattle understanding how this insinuates itself into your place of business james lindsay best-selling author and founder of new discourses more with him right after this This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking to James Lindsay, best-selling author and founder of New Discourses, talking about uh, critical race theory, the uh, expressions of it you see all around you. Your kids are probably experiencing implicit bias, uh, education, training, uh, in the K through 12 school systems, I mean, the, the almost the entire existence on a college campus these days is in part about that. Uh, and so um, so nowhere is immune, no artistic or cultural institution and no workplace. 
And uh, James, you had a piece at um, New Discourses about a template for resisting the white fragility, and that is a a buzz phrase that I'll have you explain, a template for resisting white fragility in the workplace. Right. Yeah. A lot of people are under the mistaken impression that, oh, this was all just happening in college. And when these kids get out in the real world, they're going to learn that 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 stuff doesn't work. But the truth is these kids are actually going out from college and remaking the real world on their terms. They're changing the businesses. And we see that with one CEO after another bowing to this, we see CEOs stepping down and handing their jobs to, to people that are demanding them. And so when this comes into a workplace, it will actually tear the workplace apart. There's a predictable set of dynamics that happens over and over and over again. And it's very important. What I keep getting emails about are like the template on new discourses. People can, can actually talk to their bosses. They can talk to people and say, look, I'm all about not having a racist organization, but let's understand these terms clearly. Let's understand what white fragility is. Let's understand what racism really means in this context, and let's pick a different path. And I keep hearing success stories from people who are reaching out to their boss, and they're explaining these ideas and saying, our organization will be better off doing this differently, taking up the cause, but doing it very differently than what the activists are demanding. Well, and what the activists are demanding is uh, a witch trial. Uh, for ev- everybody, everybody who's white in the organization. And they need to understand uh, people who own businesses, who hire people need to understand because they feel like if you give into this, that it'll go away. It'll make the problem go away. It does not. This cannot be satisfied. They have to understand that the people making these demands cannot be satisfied. We've mentioned critical race theory. Critical race theory has a concept core in it. It's considered one of the pillar or core tenets of critical race theory called interest convergence. And that says that when people with power give opportunities to people who are oppressed, as they define it, that they only do so out of self-interested reasons. So when you declare yourself an anti-racist company in accordance with these demands, you only did so so that you would look good, increase your bottom line or whatever, and therefore you're still racist, so you still have to answer more demands. It's an endless litany of demands it cannot be satisfied that sounds like hyperbole but it's actually true it cannot be satisfied well sure i i, I mean a, a, appeasing somebody making a claim to power based on their identity cannot be satisfied it, it's it's remarkable to me that it's remarkable to so many once you're seeing it uh, play out in real time and you've been watching it on college campuses for 30 years for goodness sakes i mean shelby Steele wrote about it in white guilt famously about his experience at uh, Coe College when he was a radical and they took over the university president's office. And the university president basically ceded power to the students. And at at that point, Shelby Steele understood that I see if I make a claim based on my skin color, based on race, then they will step down. They have no moral authority and they don't believe they have any moral authority. So we will be able to steamroll them if we want. But it turns out that the idea of just tearing down the moral authority of authorities uh, 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 from an illegitimate basis like your identity is uh, chaos engendering. That's exactly what it is. Uh, this, this is, I mean, I want to just say this not to like virtue signal or whatever, but to position myself so so your listeners understand, I actually see myself on the left. And the left is not particularly well known for pro-America rhetoric, if you, if you follow me. Yeah. 
But the truth is we live in a free country. America is a free country. And in a free country, we don't give in to demands. That's not how we do things. That's not the American way. The American way is that, you know, we set up procedures, we file petitions, we, you know, we even have peaceful protests. Fine. There are lots of ways to address grievances and to make make successful change, none of which are giving into activist demands. And what you see here, again, is what you just said was exactly correct, that when these demands come and then people fold to them, they're actually they're not appeasing the mob. They're signaling to the mob that they will give in to more and more and more, which those demands will continue to come. Well, and in Seattle, what you have is a taking. I mean, it wasn't like the, the Antifa and whoever's involved in uh, Chaz had a plebiscite and the residents of the and business owners of that six block area weighed in on whether they wanted to be governed by the, the people they elected and the, the mayor and the city council, or they wanted to be governed by this, uh, uh, this group of uh, protesters to be generous. They just took it. And now they're figuring out how to try to govern and get food to people. And, you know, I don't know, live the communal life, live this utopia that will be engendered when, uh, you know, the, the, when when whiteness is confronted and eradicated. Um, so, I mean, it's a it, when did it a taking become patriotic? That's Jenny Durkin's characterization of it. Uh, it never became patriotic. I don't know why she would say something like that. This is uh, fundamentally a movement that was has its roots in a philosophical school that was called neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism. Uh, that isn't quite the same as, as Marxism. It's not quite the same as socialism. It's very, uh, as we observe, ethnically oriented. Um, and it's, it's absolutely unwilling to make compromises. It's unwilling to uh, meet people halfway. It just has its demands, and the second you give in to them, it takes more. That's just how it works. And it... it it's very important to point out also, you know, the lie behind so much of the rhetoric that we hear. Abolish the police. Defund the police. This is mental. Everybody in the world that has any sense immediately heard that and said, well, they'll just have warlords and gangs taking over the, the role. And they said, no, that's not what will happen. Community policing will be fine. And now what does the guy in the autonomous zone in Seattle call himself? A warlord. And now you have a gang running the entire neighborhood, which is exactly what's always going to happen. He is James Lindsay, best-selling author and founder of New Discourses. I'll tweet out a couple of excellent pieces he has that we were referencing. James, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. And we spoke about this earlier in the program with Brett Baer, and I spoke about it earlier in the week per Brett Baer's interview of Attorney General Barr. But I want to end the week with something that Barr said in that interview with Brett Baer to repeat it. Because what are we talking about when we're talking about uh, situations like the flux state of Chaz in Seattle and the civil unrest on our streets in America, as well as uh, the lockdown policies under COVID-19 that are still in effect in significant ways in states of significant size like my home state of Illinois? 
we're talking about how a free society is, or, is organized, the rights of the individual versus the power of the state, and in which direction power is trending, and what are the dangers with that trend. I think you know which direction I think it's trending. Here's what uh, Bill Barr said about, again, those that think that he's political, he's just acting as a political operative in a lawyer's clothing for President Trump rather than being the people's attorney, specifically as it pertains to the uh, Durham investigation and the review of all things FBI and Trump Russian collusion investigation in 2016 and 2017. There were actions taken that really appear to be efforts to sabotage uh, his campaign. And that has to be looked at. And if people want to say that I'm political because I am looking at those potential abuses of power, so be it. So be that's it. the job of the attorney general. So be it indeed, because we're either going to have the rule of law in this country or we're going to have the rule of men. And what the rule of men descends into is the rule of the mob, as you're seeing in Seattle. And the same thing can happen at the federal level, it can happen at any level if you allow that sort of cancer to metastasize long enough. Serious business. And so we end with a little uh, poetic edition from the Dan Prof Show Poet Laureate, R.A. Droit. Uh, this on uh, Mueller, certainly contextual, given what Barr's comments referenced and the, the Durham investigation ongoing. I begin. Indictment of these Russians thrilled the press, and Miller strode about with swollen chest. But these indictments were sugar high, as Gumshoe Bob was soon to realize. One of the terms that Mueller charged with crime did not exist at the supposed time. A firm named Concord, Russian indictee, appeared in U.S. court. We are ready. We're here to claim our right to a speedy trial. Let's go, the lawyer then pleaded with a smile. To which old Mueller soiled his pinstripe drawers. He hadn't thought the case would take this course. When phony Russian crooks he did indict, he never dreamed they'd show up for the fight. T. Mueller begged the court for delay, like death row inmates asking for a stay. The fake indictments of the Russian folks were dropped as Mueller carried on his hoax. Thank you, R.A. Detroit. Very good. Always a uh, thought-provoking offering in prose from R.A. Detroit. And think about that, too, in the context of not just what Barr had to say this week, but in the context of the politicization of the Flynn case that persists as uh, those uh, who have some tangential relationship to what happened in 2016 and 2017 continue to cover their tracks or attempt to, I would argue. Thanks for joining us on another Boy, wild and willy week in uh, American policy and politics and culture. Uh, we'll uh, hope you have a good weekend, a safe weekend, and be back with us on Monday. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.